Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, January 22nd, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer Squatran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. Okay, so we're recording this one before Ben and Chris leave us. Uh, They're going to Sundance. Uh, But before that, uh, let's talk about what we've been up to. Uh, What have I been doing? I've uh, (laughs) I've been living at Disneyland, guys. I uh, spent three days in a row last week at Disneyland. One was to cover the press day for the Rise of the Resistance uh, ride, which just opened up, uh, which is insane. And I've already talked about it on a podcast previously but there's also a video you can watch online about that uh, a link to the slash film article on that uh, and then the next day was the actual opening of the ride and all my friends were going so I couldn't miss out and catch the craziness and uh, it, it's actually insane guys the, this the way that they are doing this ride in Orlando and in California is unlike any ride has been handled before. They have this thing. So people aren't waiting. Normally at a theme park, you wait in line and you get, you know, how you, you, you know, your time investment waiting in line gets you into the ride. And here in, in, in Orlando, they have this thing called boarding groups. So what happens is uh, Disneyland opened at 8 a.m. And uh, before 8, the 8 a.m. opening, I think they like let people into Disneyland onto Main Street an hour early. So everybody's let in before Disneyland opens, and at 8 a.m., everybody has to go on their phone and basically it, – it, it's the Comic-Con lottery, but on your phone in person in Disneyland where you you have to get in there like right as the 8 o'clock opening starts, get in there, press a button, and hope that you won the lottery and that your group can get on the ride. And within – I think the first day it was within like like 60 seconds or something, all the reservations for the day – 
were were gone. And I, I, I've talked to many people who have gone and actually some people that were, went there opening day that they camped out since midnight. They were in, it was raining guys. People were in line, uh, in, in the rain. And then they got in there and pressed, they weren't quick enough to push, push the button and didn't even get on the ride. Uh, so, uh, yeah, fun times, but you can see my experience of going to this opening day, uh, on ordinary adventures. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes and, uh, did I get on? Did, did, did we get through to the lottery? You'll have to find out by watching the video. Um, and, uh, I went back to Disneyland for a third day in a row, uh, because over at Disney California Adventure, they celebrate Lunar New Year every year with this food festival and it's all Chinese food and I love Chinese food and, uh, and we ate everything, and we recorded it on video, and that video went up today, and I'll put a link to that also in the show notes as well. And I highly recommend, uh, if you are a Disney annual pass holder in California, checking that out, because there's, um, not only is there good food, but there's also, like, uh, some, like, very, like, Epcot-like shows of, like, uh, celebrating uh, Chinese culture, and, you know, of course, bringing in, like, Mulan and you know Disney characters like that as well, but uh, and, and having Chip and Dale dressed in Chinese outfits, um, which is cute. Anyways, uh, that's what I've been up to. I've been mainly at Disneyland, uh, you know, getting up at three in the morning and driving down to Anaheim and being there all day, which I'm not used to doing. Uh, Brad, what have you been up to? Uh, well, I got all gussied up by my girlfriend. Um, my girlfriend, Brittany is obsessed with makeup. She loves doing people's makeup. She's, uh, very, very good at it. It's something that she wants to be able to do, uh, professionally in the, uh, the near future. And so she had been bugging me for a little while to let her do mine. Um, and originally she was trying to get me to do like a full face of drag makeup. And I was like, no, I don't want that much makeup on my face. Um, I, I generally don't like putting like face paint or anything on my face really i hated it when i was a kid i don't like the feeling of it it kind of feels like my skin is suffocating in a weird way um but i decided to let her do like just like a general face of like male makeup uh and you know not not make me up like a uh, you know a, a, like a drag queen or anything like that and so she like did the whole spiel of like putting like all the foundation on and like some eyeliner and contouring my face and like even like darkening my beard um, if, if you're if you're interested in seeing the before and after, you can check out um, my my Instagram, which is just my username is at Bradford Omen, um, and you can see that and see what it's like. I look like a magician, so Peter, you would probably really <laughs> like it. I feel it made me look like I was going to go do street magic or something. <laughs> I, I don't think street magic uh, magicians put on makeup, Brad. I think you're. Uh... I, I'm pretty sure I've seen David Blaine wearing oh. plenty of eyeliner. <laughs> No, I think you're thinking of Chris Angel. Actually, Chris Angel does wear makeup, but I don't think Dave Blaine wears makeup. You really think think he he wears eyeliner? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he does. I don't know. Look up some photos. I will say, Brad, that this is a remarkable transformation. Like, looking at these two photos, like, I honestly thought it was Photoshop. Like no, some, first... some, yeah, some other people did too. Some, some, even some of like people who know Brittany and know she has makeup thought that it was just like a joke and it was Facetune. Because, but it was just the lighting was just done so well, and she took the picture in portrait mode with natural light, and it just looked uh, really, really well done. So yeah, she should look into doing like a makeup channel on YouTube. Not to try to get everybody in on YouTube, but I feel no, like this would have been a fantastic video to show this transformation. 
that is what she wants to do, like on uh, YouTube and Instagram. In addition to like actually, you know, doing it professionally for for people, uh, you know, whether it's for weddings and events or but or eventually, you know, maybe even you know big, bigger stuff. But yeah, it's uh, she's very very good at, at what she does. If you want to, she's gonna be doing more of it soon. So uh, yeah, make sure uh, check cool. her out on Instagram, which is um, it's. Hold on a second, I forget the username because I forgot <laughs> it's if there's an underscore or not. Uh, it's it's Brittany underscore Teal T E A L. Yeah, I, I had no idea, like, on YouTube, some of the biggest things are toy unboxings and makeup tutorials. Yeah, so she watches tons of makeup tutorials to get, like, uh, better at what she does and see new, like, skills and different kind of, what the new makeup and, like, brushes and all that stuff is out there. Well, it looks like she has skills. Uh, HT, as, as the only girl on the air, uh, did you see this photo of Brad in makeup? Uh, yeah, it's very impressive. I can't say I have any makeup expertise. I actually don't wear any makeup, so but it looks great. And um, I think you should wear makeup more often, Brad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not insulting your looks or anything, but you know, every oh, nothing wrong with a little makeup. I mean, I don't wear it, but yeah. it, you know what's <laughs> remarkable about this photo? I think is the the like the facial hair. Like she yeah, cleaned no, up your facial hair in a way that like I was like, is that possible with makeup? Yeah, it's it's just it's the the what she did the color. I think it was it's like a it's a pencil or something, and she just kind of like just drew in and like darkened the the hair and fill, made made it look more full in spots. And yeah, yeah, I, I was uh, super surprised by that too. Yeah, uh, HD, what have you been up to? Well, I have had a couple of art prints just sitting around my room for a long time. And um, speaking of Lunar New Year, I've been kind of trying to prepare for it. I have sort of some superstitions surrounding it because my mom has kind of raised me to believe in a lot of those things. So I want to get like the house apartment ready for it and not have a bunch of things lying over and wait from the last year. Wait, what, what, wanted... what happens if you if you don't have if they're like lying around? If that happens on the on like the first you know week of Lunar New Year, then like whatever state you leave your life, your house in, it will be remaining like that for the rest of the year. Ah, so that's something that you want to like, you want to have a clean house and you want to have like a good food and stuff and just be sort of ready. This is Vietnamese superstitions. Yeah. I don't know if this applies to all. But um, you know what? That, that superstition but... sounds almost like practical. Like it sounds like it like it isn't like an urban legend or that feels like it like could actually be true. It is. I mean, probably. But um, there are some weird things, too. Like, for example, uh, you want to clean beforehand, but you can't clean your house the day of. Um, because then that's like you're sweeping out all of the good fortune. So like people will leave like their house and like gathering dust for a couple of days in the first days of the new year, which is is a kind of funny thing. Um, but yeah, I wanna I've been trying to like prepare and get things ready. So I was like, I'm gonna try try to finally get these prints up. And I started to put up an animation themed gallery wall in my bedroom. Um, one of them inspired by the print that you got me, actually, Peter, uh, like oh, yeah. two years ago, <laughs> of um, my neighbor Totoro print. And um, so I finally put that up, as well as this set of Chinese posters for Spirited Away that I bought on eBay a couple months ago and I really, really loved, uh, as well as a print uh, from Avatar The Last Airbender, uh, which is by Matsumoto Art, um, something that I really love. It's kind of in the style that looks like a, an old scroll and um, has all the elements of the um, uh, all the four elements in it, uh, and a print of um, from Coco of the concept art, uh, and lastly a um, a little 
poster of Millennium Actress, the Satoshi Kon film that I saw at the Metrograph, and they gave some free posters out. So I was like, I'm gonna print, I'm gonna put that up. So um, that's what I have so far, and I'm really excited about it. I'm hoping to build it out eventually and keep it sort of animation themed. But um, I'm just very stoked about having that right now. Is there any superstitions about like now that you've surrounded yourself in your room with like this art? Like, what does that mean for your new year? Well, I don't know. I mean, it just means I won't have more creativity the entire oh. year. Yeah. Maybe creativity. I don't know. I can't. I don't know like the specifics of it. It's. I think it mostly has to do with feng shui too. Like yeah. a lot of like not having a mirror in front of your bed, etc. But yeah, it just feels like good right now. So I just I'm liking that it's up finally and um, not just bothering me in the back of my mind. And it looks great. And I'm happy, excited about it. Very cool. Ben, what have you been up to? Well, my wife and I had a chance to go see the Frozen musical, the Broadway musical. It's uh, touring right now in Los Angeles. It's at the Pantages Theater. So, uh, yeah, we went and, and checked this out. Um, this is the first time I've seen uh, a Disney Broadway musical. I know I talked about Anastasia recently, but that was not based on a Disney movie. It's a, a big uh, misconception a lot of people have. Uh, anyway, I think Frozen is a much, much better musical, um, largely because most of the songs from the movie actually appear in this musical. They add a couple here and there, um, but most, for the most part, the story is pretty much the same. Uh, I just want to give a quick shout out to the two leads, uh, Caroline Bowman and Caroline Innerblicker, I think is how you pronounce her name, Innerbickler, excuse me. Uh, so anyway, they were both fantastic as Elsa and Anna, respectively. Um, I don't really have much to say about this other than like, I would recommend seeing it if you're a big fan of the movie. I know we've had a lot of conversations, you know, amongst ourselves in the Slack film Slack channel about Frozen and Frozen 2 and which one's better and all that kind of stuff. I think I still prefer the original Frozen. I, I really like that story a lot. So um, yeah, there. I think my big thing with Broadway adaptations is like anytime they're not sticking to the story that I know from the movie that they're based on, it just kind of feels like, all right, let's get back to the real thing instead of, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like instead of, uh, I don't know. I understand that ad that changes are necessary for adaptations. And actually this um, musical, I think the creative team is like largely the same people like uh, Kristen Anderson Lopez and Robert Lopez who wrote the music for the movie, uh, did the music and lyrics for this show, like including the new songs. And then Jennifer Lee, who's one of the co-directors of both films, wrote the book for this. So it's like the same creative team, um, but it still just doesn't feel, you know, the parts that, that are added just kind of feel like, all right, let's get back to the real story that, that uh, is like the, the prime story. I don't know how else to explain it. But. Is there any like musical adaptation of like a movie that is better than the movie itself? Oh man, that's a really good question. I don't know enough about, um, about the Broadway world to be able to answer that. But I'm sure some of our listeners might um, yeah. wonder I, if like, I know a lot of people love Lion King, but like what, and that takes a lot of creative liberties, I think uh, mm -hmm. with the adaptation, but do people prefer that over the animated movie? I'm not sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a yeah. good question. And then there's like the whole separate issue of like uh, movies that are based on, um, on stage plays on oh, yeah, Broadway yeah. productions, you know, going the reverse way. So, uh, yeah, I'd be interested to hear what people have to think or have to say about that. If there's any, um, movies that are based on, uh, or I'm sorry, musicals that are based on movies that, uh, ended up being better than the movie that, uh, sort of inspired them. It's a good question. Yeah. I think, uh, today on, in the news on the site, we have a story about they're turning karate kid into a, a musical for Broadway, 
which just sounds like as a person who loves Karate Kid, that sounds like a horrible idea. <laughs> yeah, sounds bad. <laughs> uh, they're also making a Back to the Future musical. Back to the Future is my favorite film of all time. I also think that's a bad idea, but I'll, I'll see that one. I don't know. Okay. Anyways, uh, Chris, uh, you're headed to Sundance. Uh, are you freaking out about the plane flight? I sure am. Uh, anyone who who listens to this show uh, probably knows by now that I am uh, petrified of flying. And no matter how many times I do it, I just can't seem to get used to it. And I keep thinking, like, I'll, I'll adapt, but I obviously won't. And um, so, yeah, I, I'm just in a uh, weird headspace. I'm excited to be going. I, I, I'm excited to go back to Sundance. I just I wish I could literally, like, be drugged asleep, carried onto the plane, and then wake up in in Sundance. And uh, to make matters worse, I actually have to, I, I was unable to find a nonstop flight, so I have to fly to Atlanta first, and then I have to get back on another plane and fly from Atlanta to uh, Utah. So uh, now I, there, there, are, <laughs> there are two opportunities for me to die in a fiery wreck, so that'll be fun. <laughs> You'll be fine, Chris. And, uh, you can yeah. do it, Chris. You know, when it when it comes to this, anytime I'm about to fly, I get very superstitious and I see everything as an omen, like I'm in a Final Destination movie. And uh, today I went to check in on my flight. You have to check in your seat. Yeah. And the website I was using literally crashed as I was checking in. And I was like, well, this is a very bad sign. The website is crashing. <laughs> therefore, the plane will be crashing as well. That's how oh, my no. mind works. So, well, Chris, to make you feel better, I also had to check in for my flight today. And the website that I was using also crashed. So right, I well, guess yeah. that means we're going down in flames together, All right. buddy. All right. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, uh, yeah, it, it's a it's a very weird. I, I wish I could get out of this headspace. Um, when I went to um, I went to New Orleans over the summer for the Overlook Film Festival, and this is also how my mind works. So uh, I'm I fly out of Philadelphia, and Phil Noble, who is the editor in chief of Fangoria, flies out of Philadelphia too because he's also from Philadelphia, and he was on my flight. And in my mind, I was like, all right, he's an important person, therefore the plane will be safe. So I, cause I'm on the same plane as him. And another time I was on a plane with Joe Dante, the director. And I was like, obviously the plane with Joe Dante on it won't go down. So I'll be safe. So that's how I look at, I need like a famous person on my flight. And that makes my mind be like, well, no one will bring, bring this famous person's plane down. Just See, pretend I, that M. Famous, Night Shyamalan Chris. is going to be on the flight going to Sundance <laughs> to check out some new indie talent. All right. Maybe I will. <laughs> See, I just imagined that someone like Joe Dante, we're going to find out, does die in like a plane crash. So Thank I feel you, like Peter. That's helpful. <laughs> no, no, no. But I feel like if I was on the plane with Joe Dante, I'd be like, oh, it, there's a bigger chance of it happening because if it just happened with me on the plane, then like it wouldn't be notable. It'd just be a plane crash. But you know, now that Joe Dante is here, like it's going like to be that's somehow like darker than my outlook. You're like the complete opposite, <laughs> where you're like, ah, that guarantees yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. I, I also have superstitions. Uh, stemming from final destination like i know in that original movie there was a a shot i'm not even sure if it's insinuated i haven't revisited that movie in so long maybe chris you know but there's a part where they have like the tag on the luggage from the previous flight and they rip it off before the flight and it's kind of insinuated that that was bad luck of ripping off that tag was the reason why this flight was going to uh, you know, crash. Yeah, yeah. There's and so I, I yeah, so yeah. I so I end up leaving on oh, those on my my luggage, and I have like, <laughs> like 
like 15 of those tags all over my luggage. And that's why you're safe. They should turn those Final Destination movies into like uh, PSAs for the TSA. Be like, oh, if they don't want you to remove those tags, then they just put it into a Final Destination movie and turn it into a superstition. Yeah, but I'm worried that like leaving these tags on are going to get my like luggage lost, though, is the problem. (laughs) Like it's it's... to pay for surviving, Peter. (laughs) Okay, let's uh. (laughs) Let's move into what we've been watching. Uh, Chris, you watched Killer Inside? Uh, yes, this is a new Netflix uh, true crime docuseries. It's three episode. Uh, it's called Killer Inside, The Mind of Aaron Hernandez. And I I was vaguely aware of the stories because I remember the headlines, but I don't really you know follow sports and I don't really follow football, so I didn't know the whole details. But Aaron Hernandez was an NFL football player and um, he ended up going on trial and getting convicted of one murder and he was accused of of two others and he eventually um, died by suicide after he was convicted. And the story like goes into, you know, his his rise as this great football player and, you know, how and his downfall. And it was a really fascinating watch because, again, I didn't know a lot about this. So uh, watching it really um clued me into the whole story and i believe ben watched this as well i did i actually went to college with aaron hernandez i was walking around the university of florida at the same time as him i saw you know went to all the football games and and watched him play and cheered him on from the stand so this was a really weird experience for me i um i did not uh really follow his career in the nfl but i was a huge you know college football fan so um uh, yeah, like you, Chris, I sort of was vaguely aware of the details of this case because, you know, those headlines were everywhere that like an NFL player was arrested for murder and it was like a huge deal. Um, but there were so there was so much in this documentary that I didn't know about, uh, even in terms of like the specifics of the case and like those other murders that he was accused of. There was, and even like the reason for his suicide, I just sort of drew lines in my own head from the points that I was aware of at the time and just sort of was like, oh, he must have committed suicide because of uh, or taken his own life because of this and and this. And then I just sort of like wrote it off and never really looked into it. But um, this documentary does a really good job of sort of painting a a much broader, um, clearer picture of uh, what kind of person this was, what kind of things he suffered from, his upbringing, like everything. So it's it's really interesting. I think my only complaint would be that I thought, even though it's a three-part documentary, I, I thought it was a little bit too long. There were times where I, I thought it sort of dragged out and there were one too many or maybe several too many instances of people being like, here's a guy who had everything and I can't believe he <laughs> killed someone or yeah. you know, like that kind of stuff. Like people hammering the same points home over and over again and like talking head style. But um, aside from those, you know, small instances, I feel like the whole thing could have just been tightened up just a little bit and it would have been infinitely better, but is still, I would say worth a watch, especially for people who don't know all of the details. Um, I'm sure we have a lot of people listening who are like huge sports fans and who followed the story very, very closely. And I'm not sure what, you know, what you might learn there, but as somebody who just followed it, you know, vaguely from afar, I I found it to be um, a really interesting watch. It's funny. I feel like Netflix has like a mandate for like these, like true crime kind of thing. Like instead of like a movie, like this could have been a two hour movie, right. Or a two and a half hour movie, but like it's a three episode miniseries. And I feel like a lot of their stuff is like these three episode miniseries. Now I'm wondering like, do they probably have some stats? They're like, Oh, if we have a three episode miniseries, they'll get people binging and, 
don't know. It, it, it's I'm just curious why why the the contents of that rather than make this into just like a proper documentary. Well, I think this one in particular is um, is structured in such a way where three episodes make sense because it's sort of like uh, each episode covers um, a different period of his life where he's playing football. So like the ah. first episode is sort of like his, uh, you know, his his childhood and like playing in high school and stuff like that. And the second episode is more college. And then the third episode is sort of like his NFL career. So um you know, the, the distinctions there make sense. I just wish that all of the episodes were like a little bit shorter. And then, uh, I think this would have been, you know, pretty close to, (laughs) to excellent, but, uh, as it is, I I still think it's very good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what have I been watching? I, uh, finally got around to see little women. This is a film by Greta Gerwig who I, and honestly it was a film I wasn't looking forward to because I'm the little women story is not something I, uh, have, liked and you know i've never read it but i've seen i think at least two of the previous adaptations and i i lived near concord massachusetts where the little women house was and i visited there a couple times um and uh i was sitting in the movie theater watching this and i was uh i gotta admit like i was a little bit bored and a little until there was a moment in the film i'm not sure how far into the film i'm not gonna no spoilers here but it involves fire I think that's fair enough of that's so, uh, you know, not specific uh, that that moment sucked me in. And then like for the rest of the movie, I was I, I totally enjoyed this film. I love the performances. I love uh, I don't I, I love her take on this and w- what she's doing with it. I you know, it's it's interesting examination of like societal pressures on women of of that time. And, you know how it kind of correlates to today and stuff like that. Uh, I, I, I enjoyed it. I would recommend it. It wasn't one of my favorite movies of last year, but, uh, I did like it, uh, quite a bit. So I'm, I'm glad I saw it. And, uh, I, yeah. Um, I, I just hope Greta Gerwig does more stuff. Not, not, not in period settings. Cause I don't, love... I mean, her two past films are technically period pieces. I know, but <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I'm cool with modern day period pieces. It's more, I don't know, it's stuffy period dramas that uh, that don't get me. Uh, the other film I saw was Britney Runs a Marathon, and this is a film, did it premiere at Sundance? I think, Brad, you liked this film, right? Yeah, it was at uh, last year's Sundance. Yeah, last year's Sundance, and uh, this is now on Amazon Prime, so everybody can see it. Uh, I gotta admit, this is another film, though, like, when it started out, uh, it seemed kind of like, cutesy and inspirational and it didn't seem to like have like that much depth but by the end of it 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 really does go a little bit deeper and is more emotional than i was expecting it to be and you know i was crying so that tells you something uh i i really did enjoy it uh i would recommend this and this is on amazon prime uh now it's called britney runs a marathon uh brad what did you watch i got around to seeing hustlers finally and man, that movie was way better than I thought it was going to be. Um, I was surprised when Chris said that he put it in his top 10 because I was like, wow, is it really that good? And that made me want to see it more. And uh, it wouldn't have cracked my own personal top 10. It probably would have ended up in like the top 15 or the top 20. But it is just it's fantastic. It's so lively and full of energy. And it's just a real stick it to the man uh, kind of movie. Jennifer Lopez is great in it. Uh, so is Constance Wu. Um, it's it's really funny. Um, it's you know it, it feels like 
the Wolf of Wall Street, but like me with a heist movie kind of a flair to it. And uh, yeah, it's, I just really can't say anything more th- than that. That's fantastic. And I, <clears throat> if I had seen it beforehand, I would have pushed maybe uh, at least slightly for a movie moment from this movie that wasn't Jennifer Lopez's introduction because that was awesome and totally is uh, the best moment of the movie. But I was laughing so much. Uh, there's a scene when Usher comes to the strip club that they work at and all the girls are like freaking out about it and Usher just rolls in in slow motion and it's just such a hilarious and awesome scene. I, I loved it. <laughs> cool. Uh, what, what else have you been watching? Uh, I um, noticed that Pain and Glory was surprisingly playing nearby me, which was um, unexpected since that's a kind of movie that doesn't usually make it to my local cineplex. Uh, so I went out of my way to see that since Antonio Banderas has been getting a lot of buzz for his performance. Uh, it's a movie by Pedro Almodovar, and it follows Antonio Banderas as a uh, filmmaker who's kind of ailing in his older years. He's got a lot of health problems, um, and he reconnects with some old people in his life. I don't, I don't really want to give anything away, but it's this very introspective uh, and retrospective um thing that's inspired by Pedro Almodovar's own life and Antonio Banderas is so good in it and it's um I I went into this really blind the only thing I knew is that Antonio Banderas's performance was great in it um and that uh Pedro Almodovar directed it Uh, so I I just went with the flow and it's uh such a uh, a touching movie it's a little um odd in parts but not in an off-putting way and it's just this yeah, this this great movie that just kind of just looks back at legacy in a way. It's almost it, it kind of feels like uh, Pedro's own uh, The Irishman in a way, though not quite as uh, epic or sprawling in nature, but just 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 the way that it reflects on life and 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 legacy and like the people in our lives and that kind of thing. Cool. And what else have you been watching? I also saw uh, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, uh, which is currently available um, on uh, Amazon Prime. And this was one where um, I also didn't really know much about it, but I I had heard some good things from people. I'd seen it on a couple top ten lists, and uh, my my girlfriend had been wanting to watch it since she had heard that it was pretty good as well. And it's uh, directed by Joe Talbot. It's his first movie. This is a movie that garnered, uh, I guess, a lot of attention um, because he was really kind of like a grassroots filmmaker where he got into it and really didn't have any skills or know anything about how to make a movie, but had an idea to make one um, with uh, Jimmy Fails, who is essentially plays himself in the movie. And they had like a Kickstarter campaign and raised all the money to make it. And he got, um, got advice from Barry Jenkins and met with like Plan B. And it just, it really is this like true indie movie. Uh, and it follows these uh, two two young black men who are living in, in San Francisco. And one of them, Jimmy Fails, is obsessed with uh, fixing the house that he used to live in as a child, even though there are other people living there. Um, and then when they, they move out, they basically like try to, to squat in it and stay there. And it's just this entire thing of him trying to get this house and recapture, you know, basically this what, what he believes is this historical part of his family. Um, and it's it, it's a um, a bit strange in its presentation, but it's never boring. It's it's you're you're always kind of compelled because you're wondering exactly where this is going and uh, what's happening. The performances in it are outstanding. Uh, the cinematography is gorgeous. The way they shoot inside and outside this house is is beautiful. And uh, yeah, it's um, 
it's a little bit of a slow, a slower burn, and it's it's challenging at times. Um, not necessarily because it's boring, just because it's uh, it doesn't really like lay everything out for you in the most most obvious way. Um, but it's uh, if you uh, if you're interested in checking it out, like I said, it's it's on Amazon Prime. I uh, I definitely liked it. Very cool. And you had one more thing to talk about today. Yeah, my so we don't have any really new episodes of British uh, baking show to watch anymore. And so my girlfriend um, saw that there's this show on Netflix called Zumbo's Just Desserts. Uh, and it's this Australian chef. Apparently, he's very famous down under. He like he has his own restaurants and, and everything. And it's a dessert, uh, you know, baking competition show. It's not quite as charming as British baking show because it's a little bit more competitive um and the hosts aren't as endearing but the creations um are a little bit uh higher quality and more difficult to pull off so it's 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 fun to watch in that way interesting to see what kind of creations they come up with and like the the set that they use is almost like this industrial willy wonka's chocolate factory kind of (laughs) set uh so it's 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 pretty entertaining it's it's a good one of those good just like sit down relax and just watch the make delicious desserts kind of show and where can you find that show that's on netflix netflix ht what have you you actually went to the theater and saw doolittle yes well i didn't pay for it if that's if uh that makes everyone feel better <laughs> well but I well you did doodle. pay for it with your time ht I did. <laughs> well i saw doodle doolittle so you didn't have to <laughs> and uh you don't have to because it's a bad movie <laughs> this is Robert Downey Jr.'s big project after the Marvel Cinematic Universe, after his uh, career-defining role as Tony Stark in uh, the MCU, and uh, it was a very poor choice. It was um, it's directed by Stephen Goggin, and it's a remake of the um, Doctor Doolittle uh, story. It's done in a way that is actually more accurate to the original story by Thomas, uh, not Thomas Shepard, uh, by Hugh Lofting. And is inspired by his novel, The Voyages of Dr. Doolittle. Um, this, is a, this is a movie that is very, very obviously cobbled together by reshoots and bad CGI and jokes that were that do not work at all. There is one joke in which um, Dr. Doolittle is uh, taking are trying to dislodge the rectum of a dragon who does appear in this movie and and discovers all sorts of armors, skeleton, swords, and uh, when he finally dislodges it, she rewards him with a big, long fart in his face and a thank you. And it's such a bizarre, bad moment that is just it went on forever, first of all, <laughs> and uh, felt like the embodiment of everything wrong with this movie. Um, it's just... It's it's the jokes are very anachronistic and done in a way that's very like supposed to be tongue in cheek and modern, but uh, come off as very just unfunny altogether. And um, Robert Downey Jr. is doing some sort of accent as Doctor Doolittle. It sounds kind of like an approximation of a Welshman mixed with the Welshman being like stabbed or something. But he apparently (laughs) based it on some kind of Welsh doctor or something like that. Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, but yeah, it's um, it there's like 
it's interesting because at the, the beginning of the movie, they start with this really sweet and whimsical storybook opening. And I was like, okay, maybe this has some promise to it. Maybe this will be similar to how Paddington like uh, upended our expectations for it and became the sweet, whimsical story. And I feel like there's sometimes glimmers of that in Doolittle, but then it just gives in to, giving, to doing sort of lots of lots of fart jokes and um, making re- refines say a line like oh my berry balls so it's yeah it's bad (laughs) and it didn't do well at the box office do you think that's because the audience could smell it from you know the stink from far away like Uh, it's weird because robert downey jr i feel like today is like one of the biggest movie stars but is there any value in 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 movie stars if if they can't get people to see the stinker (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, the movie star, I, the idea of the movie star has been dying for a couple yeah. of years now. There isn't anyone who has that box office draw, even the ones who are the highest paid people in on the Forbes list every year. Like Dwayne Johnson is supposedly the one sort of consistent movie star, but even he has bombs. So, yeah. And Tom Cruise, too, has plenty of bombs. So it's a... Uh, yeah, it's um, it seems like this is definitely the death knell of the movie star because uh, Rob, even Robert Downey Jr. and his bad Welsh accent can't save this. <laughs> okay, uh, you also saw the gentleman. Yes, uh, this is the new guy Richie Romp, and um, I didn't really know what to go into, what to expect going into this. Uh, from the marketing and the posters, it seemed kind of like he was trying to. Um, recapture his old sort of uh, hyper-violent gangster gangster film that he had become known for, like Lock, Stock, and Smoke and Barrel, and Snatch, and also have a sort of Kingsman-inspired style. But um, I actually kind of enjoyed this film. It is a little bit of a mess, and I think it's trying to say something that doesn't have the the skill to say about uh, class divides and generational divides, but... It is pretty fun based on the power of the um, the ensemble, which includes Matthew McConaughey, Hugh Grant, uh, Henry Golding, Michelle Dockery, Charlie Hunnam. The best part of this is Hugh Grant as this really sleazy reporter, and uh, he's just hamming it up and having a ball. I think that ever since he uh, started Paddington 2, as a, Paddington 2 as a villain, he has been kind of unleashed and is uh, sleazing and slamming it up as much as possible, and he's just having a blast in this movie and is kind of the the reason a lot of it works. Um, Colin Phil also appears for a brief minute and is a, a scene stealer as well. Um, but the movie itself is a little convoluted and feels sometimes like um, Guy Ritchie is trying to recapture his best beats and his own style. Um, but it is, uh, it's, it's pretty, it gets um, propelled through by the power, by the performances of the cast. So people should go see this? Yeah, I'd say like um, if you have a weekend free, see it. Uh, don't go out of your way to see it, but um, it's pretty enjoyable. Okay, what else did you see? Um, I got the chance to see Weathering with You. This is the new Makoto Shinkai film. He is the director of Your Name. It's a movie that I raved about. It was one of my favorite films of 2017. 2017. And um, this was a movie that I was really anticipating, uh, crying my eyes out, and that sort of cosmic romance that Makoto Shinkai really nailed with uh, Your Name. And it has that same sort of cosmic uh, centerpiece and as well, as well as a lovely romance, but doesn't have quite the emotional uh, punch that Your Name has. It's a little, It leans a little bit more on the comedic side. Um, it has some more slapstick moments. And... Um, is is really really a sweet film that uh, is actually about climate change and um, 
and uh, the the dangers of climate change as well. But its message is a little muddled, I think. Um, I I can't say what exactly the, the message would be. I think uh, this is my reading upon it, is that like Makoto Shinkai took to heart some of the uh, people sort of proclaiming him to be the next Hayao Miyazaki and decided to go for this really strong environmental message. But he doesn't really know how to follow through with that environmental message. And it seems like at the end of the film, he's kind of dooming the earth to something a little less happy than what the the happy love story ending uh, ends up being. So it's, it is interesting. It's a little bit of a muddled film, um, not as strong as a film as Your Name, but uh, really enjoyable, really beautiful, beautiful watch. Um, I think Makoto Shinkai and his blend of 3D and uh, 2D animation uh, has a and his uh, his renderings of photorealistic Tokyo as well have a real magical quality to them that um, are worth seeing in the theater for sure. Just don't see it with a lot of anime fans because they will be talking the entire time and laughing every time someone says a, a curse word in Japanese because it's just so funny. Um, so. Wait, wait, why are they talking? I'm out of fan. I was at a fan screening for Weathering with You, and it was full of fans who were very enthusiastic. But we're just talking the entire time, and I was watching the Japanese um, uh, uh, voice version with English subtitles, and uh, pe- people behind me were just very excited every time they said "kuso," which means "damn." And so I don't. I just. It was very annoying, but the movie itself was great, um, and the songs as well uh, are really fantastic. So that's Weathering with You. Um, I think it's um, it might actually be out of most theaters by now, but if you have the chance to see it, please do. Okay, what else have you been watching? All right, I've ca- I've seen a couple other films. Uh, this is a movie that I actually had seen last time around, but forgot to talk about. So this is Transit, which is a German romantic drama directed by Christian Petzold. This was when I was catching up on my 2019 movies. And this is a movie that I really enjoyed and was really transfixed by. Uh, it is based on um, a World War II novel by Anna Sagers uh, and is about a, a refugee who is fleeing a fascist state. But it's actually set in modern day and has this kind of timeless feel to it that lends to this unsettling effect of not knowing where or when you really are. Um, and then this refugee uh, is uh, played by Franz Rogowski. And he um, is attempting to escape um, occupied Paris uh, for the Americas. And he ends up taking on the name of a well-known writer who had died um, and um, taking his documents to try to to, to escape the, the fascist state. And um, he runs into the wife of the writer and falls in love with her. And um, it's this really sort of um, dreamlike film that is like... Casablanca uh, meets um, La Jete. It's it's very slow and surreal, but I found myself really mesmerized by this film, and uh, I I enjoyed it quite a bit. Not, it didn't make my top ten of 2019, but um, it's actually high up there. It's in my honorable mentions, and uh, it's really fantastic. This is called that's called Transit, and it's actually streaming right now on Amazon Prime. Uh, a couple other movies I watched were uh, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. This is the film by Louis Benuel, 
Bunuel, sorry. And um, this is actually a film that I thought I'd seen because my dad has a, a funny story about watching this when he was living in France and gone on a date to see this. And he told this story so many times about how he'd seen it and hated it and um, that I thought I had actually watched this film, but I hadn't. I got, got a chance to watch it on the Criterion channel where it's streaming now. And it's a 1972 film directed by Louis, Louis Bunuel, who is um, a surrealist um sort of a surrealist artist uh, best known for uh, films like uh, That Obscure Object of Desire or um, La Chien Andalou, the, the um, film where the um, woman's eyes, eye gets cut. I think that's his, yeah. Um, but this is a film um, that kind of uh, fittingly comes like after our, our year of Eat the Rich films because I felt like I feel like this film is uh, one of the OG Eat the Rich or rather keep the rich from eating because it's about a group of upper middle class friends uh, living in France during a time of political turmoil who keep trying to make plans to eat dinner together and keep getting thwarted in more absurd and more bizarre ways. First time it's because of a miscommunication and then the second time it's because they find a dead body in a restaurant and it keeps getting more and more bizarre as that as it goes on. They're interrupted by a terrorist cell at one point. They're interrupted by a, mili- a couple military drills. And um, the second half of the film actually takes place almost entirely in dream sequences that are disconnected from each other, but they're dreams of um, each of the member of the members of the friends um, some of them are dreams within dreams and uh, it's uh, they're all intertwined in a way that uh, is is very um, unsettling but is uh, really enjoyable to watch and uh, very funny too uh, despite some of the more bizarre moments of the film uh, and that's uh, the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie which you can find on the criterion channel um, I also Did you call wa- your dad and be like, Dad, you're wrong. This movie's good. <laughs> yes. I was like, you were wrong. 16U was wrong. Uh, 16-year-old you was wrong. But I don't think he would like it now. It's definitely not a film he would enjoy. <laughs> um, and another film that I watched, this, uh, although I think this was actually off-streaming now, this is a film called Delicatessen. It, it was, I watched it on Amazon Prime, and it is directed by uh, Jean-Pierre Junet uh, and Marc Caro. This made headlines a couple years ago, back when director Jean-Pierre Junet accused the Shape of Water director, Guillermo del Toro, of plagiarizing him for the scene in which um, uh, uh, the characters were dancing with their feet to a silent movie or to a classic movie that was airing like that was airing on the TV next to them. And um, there is definitely a very musical, rhythmic um tone to this entire film, which is very bizarre. Um, It's a post-apocalyptic film um, set in post-apocalyptic France uh, in a a rundown apartment building run by a butcher who routinely lures in new victims um, in in the form of like handyman ads and trying to get the employees and will kill them and sell them as food to his tenants um, because this is uh, in this post-apocalyptic future. uh, There is no meat. The only thing left are grains, which are used as currency. So um, all the people in this apartment building are meat eaters and they kind of uh, allow this to slide because they don't want to be killed next. And the newest of the disposable workers is a former circus clown who uh, steals the heart of the butcher's uh, daughter, and uh, she decides to try to save him from her father's wrath. And uh, it's a it's a very weird 
kinky film. There's this mustard yellow sort of saturated color palette to this entire thing. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's it can be very off-putting at first, but if you like uh, films like the Lost City, of, the City of Lost Children, or Amelie, which Jean-Pierre Junot would, would Junet would eventually go on to direct. Uh, Amelie is a much more toned-down version of this film. This is one of his first films, actually, and definitely his his strangest. But um, that is Delicatessen, and it used to be streaming on Amazon Prime, but you can rent it for now on Amazon. And um, after all that, you know, fancy French French films and and good films, and uh, you know, well other theatrical films, I decided to watch a bunch of trash on Netflix. Um, So on Netflix, I binged two series, one of which is um, called The Circle. It's a reality show that is an American remake of a British reality series. And um, it's a Netflix reality show about um, a group of contestants who move into an apartment building where they cannot interact with anyone else except through this social media app, in which uh, which is shown on all the TV screens in this apartment, and uh, they but they never meet them face to face, or do they know whether the people they're interacting with um, through this social media app are real? Because the contestants can choose who they want to be, uh, whether they they are themselves or whether they're going to catfish and be someone else on their social media profiles. And um, it seems at first like this really mean-spirited social experiment, and I wasn't really into it for the first half of the episode. And then, for some reason, I got uh, completely pulled in. Um, I can't for in good confidence say that this is a good show, but it sure is an entertaining show and one that is surprisingly wholesome at times because this kind of takes the you know the common refrain in a lot of reality shows where people say i'm not here to make friends and reverses that because these people really are here to make friends the goal of the show is to win the most become the most popular person uh, as voted by all the other contestants so everyone is trying to make connections and uh, make alliances and uh see like try to figure out who who they can connect with to be at the top. But in the end, they actually end up making a lot of genuine connections uh, despite never seeing each other in person. And uh, some of the most heartfelt moments are between just like this, these two bros who are com- from completely different walks of life, one of which is like this very typical Jersey boy who looks like he's an, um, a uh, uh, reject of Jersey Shore. And another one is um, a an Indian American sort of UCLA grad who works in like VR programming and they become best friends and it's really sweet. And, um, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's surprisingly, I think it, the show itself, like the contestants made it more wholesome than the, uh, the show intended it to be because a lot of the games that they have are intended to sow discord and everything. But, uh, the players in, in, um, in the end end up uh, bonding and, uh, forming actual, um, as far as I could see, genuine bonds than anything. So that's The Circle, which is now on Netflix. Um, it's 12 episodes. So if you have you know, a couple of days and want to turn your brain off, it's pretty fun. 
Another show that I can't say in good confidence is good, but it's entertaining, is The Witcher. And this is a show that I wish Jacob was on today because he, had, he I think, was the most excited about this. This is based off of both a video game and a Polish novel upon which the video game was based. Um, and uh, it takes inspiration from more from the Polish novel, but I know that Henry Cavill, who stars in it, is, supposed, is, trying, is basically doing an impression of the video game character. And... Um, this is a, a real a high fantasy series about a mutated monster hunter, uh, the titular Witcher, named Geralt, who is trying, who is, you know, goes around killing monsters and finds himself uh, at the. I can't exactly describe. He finds himself with his fates intertwined with several other people, and um, it's it's not a yeah. It, I can't say it's a good show. A lot of the the world world building and the plotting is quite confusing and convoluted. Um, there are actually three timelines happening in this show, like three separate timelines. And it's not clear that there are three separate timelines until about halfway through the series. And you're like, oh, this is taking place in the past. Um, but it's quite fun, uh, despite some of the how gruesome it can sometimes get, which I think takes away from the show sometimes. I think they go a little overboard. But there's this unintentionally campy element to it that makes it really enjoyable to watch. Henry Cavill gives in gives a surprisingly uh, comedic performance despite how gruff he is. Um, he has like a million ways of saying, of grunting, hmm, which is really hilarious. And um, there's, of course, uh, his sort of sidekick, Jaskier, who is a... Um, a bard who sings that that song Toss a Coin to Your Witcher, which is the reason I started watching this show because the song is insanely catchy and uh, become sort of the fun um, comedic focal point of this show and made me realize like, oh, this is what the show is or should be instead of what it's trying to be. Um, at some points, uh, it feels kind of like a sci-fi channel series that's given a, a cable size uh, budget um, and the writing itself feels very like sci-fi channel-esque too but um, it's just it's just kind of fun I, I enjoy the camp whether it's essential or not <laughs> and um, the characters too are mostly in double Gerald uh, is uh, and Yennefer are the ones who are the standouts for me Yennefer is sort of this this witch who becomes uh, very powerful and eventually uh, crosses, crosses paths with Gerald as well and um, so yeah that's that's the witcher uh a fun, riotous, good time. See, I turned this on uh, last week or whenever it came out, and I, I think we watched like five or ten minutes before we decided it wasn't for us. But yeah. but this has become a huge hit for Netflix, it seems. The first episode is bad, I have to say. I watched the first episode and was like, oh, that was a bad episode. But it gets better in episode two when uh, Jaskier comes on board and you're like, oh, this is actually a hammy uh, – a campy comedy <laughs> so once it stops taking itself so seriously it becomes more fun well, very cool and that is on netflix uh ben what have you been watching speaking of things that you can't say with any confidence are actually good i watched six underground which is the new michael bay movie that's on netflix this thing dropped on i think december 13th so it's been on there for a little while but i haven't really seen too many people talk about this uh it's the ryan reynolds movie that has an ensemble cast that includes people like Dave Franco and Melanie Laurent. Um, uh, Corey Hawkins from um, Straight Outta Compton is in this as well. Uh, has anybody else here seen this movie? I'm, I'm curious. I don't remember if anybody's mentioned it on a previous uh, article. Or... 
I got about 15 minutes into this and I said, I'm, I'm done with this. Um, <laughs> even from like a Michael Bay standpoint, this, I found this like unwatchable. I, I don't know if it's because I haven't seen a Michael Bay movie in a long time because I sort of sat out the, the late era Transformers movies. I just decided, you know what? These aren't for me. I'm not even going to bother with them. Um, but I kind of liked this movie. I think I, I, it just it's it really is Michael Bay completely unhinged and like let off the leash to do whatever he wants. And it's it's. Um, at times utterly incomprehensible uh you know for it, it breaks all the traditional rules of filmmaking but it is pure michael bay style just amped all the way up and if that's something that you're interested in i think you're gonna have a really good time with six underground i i'm now i, I want to see this after hearing well, you say that that sounds I know, like I mean, amazing I, I i just i find myself like sort of in the middle when it comes to michael bay i i really like uh you know like the rock and some of his early stuff that that really um holds up as like a uh, stylish cinema that actually feels like real movies instead of just a Michael Bay product. And this movie definitely feels like a Michael Bay product. It seems like the kind of movie of his that I would hate, but I, I think it might just be because I haven't seen him um, really let loose in this way before, or, or at least in a long time that I just found myself like having a lot of fun with this thing. I, I didn't take it too seriously. I I just decided to completely give up uh, looking into or trying to read the movie in any way where he may be like making a, any sort of statement about anything and, and like uh, interested in exploring themes or anything that like normal filmmakers would do. I was just like, all right, Michael Bay doesn't seem interested in any of that stuff. He just wants every shot to look as cool as it possibly can. And, you know, it's a long movie, but I ended up like walking away being like, all right, I would watch more of that on Netflix where, you know, I, I don't think I would go to a, a theater to see Six Underground 2 or Seven Underground or whatever they end up <laughs> calling it. Um, but I think the, the aim here was for the, this to be the start of a franchise. And, you know, if you're a fan of Ryan Reynolds and his shtick, he's definitely doing that. And this is written by the writers of Deadpool and I hate Deadpool, but uh, I thought this was like, those guys are a good fit with Michael Bay's ridiculous over the top style. So I ended up kind of having fun with six underground. So you can check that out on Netflix right now, if you're interested. Hmm. Uh, let's see what else I watched a movie called force majeure. This is a 2014 film. Uh, I think written and directed by uh, Ruben Ostland. And this is the movie that we we're talking a little bit on yesterday's episode about the movies that we're looking forward to at Sundance. And there is a remake of this um, starring Will Ferrell and Julia Louis-Dreyfus called Downhill that's coming out this year. And uh, this is a movie, basically it's about a family who goes on a vacation to uh, somewhere in the mountains. I'm not even sure what country they're in actually, but I think France. Um, and uh, they're, you know, it's like a ski trip kind of thing. And they're out on a balcony uh, at the at this really fancy resort that they're staying at. And a an avalanche happens, but it's like a controlled avalanche that the ski, um, that, that's done to generate fresh powder for skiing and the avalanche kind of gets a little out of control and, and starts rolling in and gets really, really close and eventually like comes like, like a uh, smoke from it or whatever comes over the, <laughs> like this uh, restaurant balcony area. And instead of um, 
you know, grabbing his family and trying to get them to safety, the patriarch of this family just takes off on his own. He just like leaves them behind and and runs away. Um, I think this clip went viral relatively recently because people thought that it was real or something. I don't understand how that happened, but that was a Twitter thing for a little while. Um, Yeah, I I ended up really, really enjoying this movie. I think it has a lot to say about like ideas of, uh, you know, truth and perception and responsibility. And there are um, other characters in it where these the main family sort of explains the situation to these other characters and they voice concerns that we the audience would have and and um it's just just like an interesting exploration of what you would do in those type of you know high pressure situations and like how to live with yourself if you make the wrong one (laughs) um so I, i found it really interesting i'm i'm very curious now to see if an american remake can sort of retain what makes this movie special but um i guess I'm going to try to see Downhill while we're at Sundance, so uh, maybe I can report back on that. So um, Force Majeure is on, I think it's on Hulu right now. It might also be on Amazon Prime Video as well. Did you finally see that because of the Sundance film? Yes, yeah. Yeah. You know, this has been on my list for a long, long time. It's been, like, sitting in my queue for years and years, and I just, it's one of those that I've I've always had uh, a vague interest in, but, yeah, I finally was spurred on to see it because of this upcoming remake, so... Uh, I also saw The African Queen, which is uh, a movie that uh, is another one that's been on my list of things to see for a long time. It's like, you know, one of the AFI top 100 movies. It's like a a really uh, well-respected old school film from 1951. It was directed by John Huston, and it stars um, uh, Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn. And this is the only movie where um, Humphrey Bogart won the Academy Award for Best Actor. So I'm a big Bogart fan, and I had not seen this yet. It is, uh, or it was on Turner Classic Movies. I'm not sure if it's streaming anywhere right now, but search it, seek it out if you're interested and if you haven't seen this, because um, I, I really enjoyed the dynamic between Bogart and Hepburn. It's really like a mo- like a two-hander where they're the main characters and the movie really heavily relies on the chemistry that they have with each other. Um, the premise is basically like Bogart is a, a crazy, like a drunken ship captain and um, Catherine Hepburn is sort of like this stuck-up um very like prim and proper uh, religious woman, and they are together on uh, on this this beat up boat in I think the Congo, and uh, trying to decide like what they should ultimately do, and uh, as war is breaking out, whether they should help their country or um, just sort of go it alone. So um, it, it's a really interesting movie, and and after seeing it, it's like clearly it's obvious why it's so well-respected. It's just really, really solid, well-made. It definitely feels very much like the Jungle Cruise, the Disney ride, and I would not be surprised to find that this movie like inspired the design of that. I haven't looked into that, but uh, I would not be surprised at all because it's, it's like so close to what I imagine um, the Imagineers thinking, you know, when they were designing that ride. Um, and I, I just, with the new uh, Jungle Cruise movie coming this year with uh, Emily Blunt and The Rock, I just, like, watching this movie, I cannot imagine that film, which definitely is, like, supposed to be paying homage to The African Queen. I, I can't imagine that Jungle Cruise movie being half as good as this movie. So seek that out if you're interested. It's uh, it's streaming somewhere, I'm sure. What if but, Jungle Cruise is even better than Afri- being The African Queen? Then? I mean, I would, be, <laughs> I would be thrilled at that. I just don't have any faith in in, in that actually happening. But I, I, I am open to that possibility and very excited to be proven wrong yeah. if that ends up being the case. And, and, and you are right. Uh, the Imagineers, including Harper Goff, uh, 
reference the African queen uh, frequently uh, in the concepts or conceptual design of like some of the like stuff like the the designs of the vehicles and yeah everything. Oh, cool. So yeah, yeah. I didn't know if it like if that appeared in uh, the Imagineering story on Disney Plus. I haven't d- uh, dived into that show yet or anything, but. Um... Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, okay. So uh, TV shows. I, I watched all of Homecoming, which is a show that's been on my radar for a little while. Uh, I remember Chris watching it and liking it. Uh, I listened to the podcast on which it's based, but this is a show that stars uh, Julia Roberts and uh, Bobby Cannavale and Stephen James and Shea Wiggum. It's on Amazon. It's an Amazon original. And uh, yeah, it's based on this podcast. It's basically about um, Julia Roberts plays a social worker who works at a facility that's supposed to be like a transitional center for um, soldiers coming back over from Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's supposed to be a place where they uh, she works at this place where they are supposed to be like um, eased back into society and mysterious stuff starts happening. And then there's a time jump where later, like she's like four years later, I think she's working at a totally different place and, and uh, has a whole different life and can't really remember her time at uh, this homecoming facility. So it's all about this back and forth time jump kind of thing as, as details get filled in and the mystery slowly comes to the fore, uh, comes to the fore. So um, Sam Esmail, who's behind Mr. Robot, uh, directed all the episodes of this and um, I guess was responsible for it, you know, in, in some other kind of creative capacity. I don't know if he wrote the episodes or just uh, was like the, the showrunner creator kind of guy. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed this show a lot. Um, Chris, I don't remember. I think I remember you liking this show, but did you have any uh, any specific things from Homecoming that stick with you? I mean, no, I, I loved it. I thought it was one of the best shows I saw that year. And I, I feel like not enough people talked about it. Um, it's just the the style of it and it uses all these musical cues from like 1970s paranoia thrillers and it just it's it does this really cool thing with um aspect ratio where the the quote-unquote modern stuff is done in like uh, iphone aspect ratio and the and the flashback stuff is is widescreen and the way it, it brings those aspect ratios together in like a late episode, like blew me away. Like I was so <laughs> impressed with how they did that. And I, I wish more people had seen this. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that's the, you know, the danger of uh, the peak TV era and like we're, you know, with all these other streaming services about to come, I, I'm just really worried about high quality shows like this getting going completely under the radar. Like, yeah, people, you know, TV critics will write about them in, in their you know, first week of release or whatever, but like for people to be actually be able to find these things, there's just so much stuff out there. And I, I just want to do my part to try to turn people on to homecoming. Cause I think it's definitely worth watching. I, from what I understand, they're going to be uh, making a second season. And I, I think it's supposed to be sort of, um, mostly like a anthology style kind of thing. Like maybe some familiar characters from the first season are going to pop back up again, but uh, it's supposed to be like a different director. And I think Janelle Monet is supposed to be um, in the, as like the the lead of season two. So uh, I'm excited about that whenever that happens to come out. I have no idea if that's going to be out in 2020 or what, but um, yeah, anyway, homecoming is on Amazon prime video right now. It's really great. Uh, okay, and then um, I watched The Outsider. I've seen the first three episodes of that, which are, are have aired on HBO right now. Um, the show is basically like a True Detective meets Stephen King. Um, Jason Bateman is in it. Ben Mendelsohn is in it. Bill Camp, um, Julian Nicholson. Um, it, it's got a really good cast. Uh, Cynthia Erivo shows up in the I think the third episode as a character who I'm not fully sold on yet, but I'm 
and I guess that's a, a good description of my thoughts on the show so far. I'm not fully sold, but I'm intrigued enough to keep watching. I think it definitely has that uh, sheen of like um, prestige HBO TV, like uh, Jason Bateman directed the first couple episodes and it looks uh, very slick and, and in that sort of, um, uh, what's that show that he's on in, on Netflix right now? Uh, oh, Peter, uh, you watch it. Yeah, uh, in yeah. that Ozark kind of way. Yeah, exactly. So it kind of has like, a little bit of that um it's it's pretty dark some of the sub subject matter is pretty dark uh and there's also seemingly something maybe supernatural going on it's really like that's where the stephen king element comes into play um but uh yeah it's, it seems to be like a, a really interesting like murder mystery kind of thing with like uh, a bit of um yeah supernatural stuff uh, maybe lurking in the background so uh chris i know you've seen more episodes of this than i have uh, does it get better or stay good or like what, what do you think about the outsider i mean i liked it from the start so i don't i don't know but yeah i've seen the first six episodes i i really liked it um i liked it more than the book actually so uh, i don't know but uh i would say stick with it okay all right yeah <laughs> uh and then um i i started re-watching breaking bad with my wife uh my parents got us the uh the complete series on blu-ray right after the show aired it came in this really cool barrel with like all this bonus material there's like a los pollos hermanos apron that i wear sometimes when i'm cooking in the kitchen uh and it came with like a usb drive and like a boat and all sorts of bonus discs and stuff um but i have yet to actually sit down and re-watch the show since it aired so i've only seen every episode of breaking bad just once and um i, I wanted to wait an for enough time to have passed for me to sort of forget some of the little details i remember the show obviously in like broad strokes but uh, I think enough time has passed now, and and that has been uh, th that assessment has been bearing out in, in my rewatch because there are several details in the first you know four or five episodes, however many we've watched now, where I'm like, man, I can't believe that this happened this early in the season, or like this character is already you know catching on to Walt and his crazy lies and all this stuff. So um, man, I just I really really love the show, and, and I would highly recommend watching Breaking Bad as if anybody else needed a recommendation to watch. You you know, one of the greatest TV dramas of all time, but uh, show is really good. Well, very cool. Uh, Chris, what you haven't been watching Breaking Bad, but you've been watching Bad Boys. Uh, yes, I went and saw Bad Boys for Life, and I had zero expectation for this movie because, uh, you know, there was a long delay between this and the second one. Uh, it kept going through problems with scripts and it kept changing directors. And I was like, all right, there's no way. Also, the trailers look bad. Yes. Like, everything about this was hinting at, like, a, I don't want to say a disaster, but not a great movie. And I was surprised at how good this movie was. It's, um, you know, I wouldn't call it a fantastic film, but it's so well made and it's so uh, <laughs> entertaining. And Will Smith and Martin Lawrence are really good together, just, like, riffing and the thing I found most surprising about it is that it was surprisingly like grown up and like, you know, those first two movies, they were directed by Michael Bay. This one has a different director and Michael Bay is, is not uh, a mature filmmaker. Um, He, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying he's, he's like the worst of the worst. I like some Michael Bay movies and I appreciate some of his style, but, and uh, his movies don't have like, you know, an adult bone in their body. And, as much as I enjoy how over the top and crazy bad boys two is, it's a really nasty mean spirited movie that 
uh, I feel like you couldn't even make that movie today. And it, it's just like a really cruel sort of film. And this one sort of reverses that. And it, it kind of has the characters sort of like growing up a little bit and grappling with the fact that they're not these like young guys anymore. They're, you know, they're older now and they have to sort of like let their, their past go. And I was just really imp- like, I was not expecting bad boys three to be mature. And I kind of felt weird after it ended. Cause I was like, I really like that. And then I was sort of like relieved to see that it got like pretty good reviews overall. And it was like a surprise hit. No one was expecting it to be good. So it kind of made me feel like, oh, I'm not crazy in in liking this movie. So, so Bad Boys Three, surprisingly good. And what else have you seen? Um, I watched uh, a true crime series. It's not out yet. It, it deb- debuts on January 31st on Amazon, but I got screeners of it. And it's called Ted Bundy Falling for a Killer. And this really impressed me. This is probably like one of the best true crime things I've ever seen because it does something. I've never, I don't, you don't really see that often. And I don't think I've ever seen before in a, in a Ted Bundy documentary in that it, it focuses almost entirely on, on the victims. Like Ted Bundy is almost like a supporting character in this documentary. And the documentary is first and foremost told from the point of view of Elizabeth Kendall, who is, who was his, his longtime girlfriend. And that was actually the focus of that movie. Uh, extremely vile, blah, 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 which which was at Sundance last year with Zac Efron as Ted Bundy, which I, I kind of liked that movie more than most people, but it wasn't as great as it could have been. And this this documentary shows you how good it possibly could have been because it, it's really her story about how she fell in love with him and how she couldn't believe, you know, this guy was a serial killer. And also it takes the time to interview like the relatives of not all of his victims, but a lot of his victims, like, you know, you know, sisters and, and mothers and people who are still alive, who just talk about, you know, their loved ones and who, how they were as people and what Ted Bundy took away. And it's like the complete opposite of glamorizing, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, these crimes, like, you know, I, I love true crime series, but a lot of them, sort of sensationalize and glamorize their subjects. And this does the complete opposite where it just points out how awful all this stuff was. And it, it made me like oddly emotional. I was not expecting it. So uh, I, I highly recommend that one that hits Amazon on Ju- uh, January 31st. Okay. Let's move on to what we've been eating. Brad, what have you been eating this week? Um, chomping on some junk as usual. Uh, two new cereals I got a hold of, um, candy-inspired cereals, which the track record so far for those hasn't been very good, and the, that track record continues. Uh, I got Hershey's Kisses cereal, which I anticipated would at least be as good as Cocoa Puffs, um, and it's just not. It's The chocolate flavor is not there. Uh, Cocoa Puffs is just so much more, has like that genuine like cocoa flavor to it, and uh, even like the milk that turns, you know, chocolate afterwards, it just wasn't uh, nearly as, as tasty as I was hoping. And I feel like, you know, just as a, a nitpicking note, they really kind of missed the the mark when it comes to the packaging because it's Hershey's Kisses and you would anticipate maybe that the bag that the cereal comes in would it would be like a foil kind of bag, but it wasn't, you know, just lazy all around. <laughs> and then <clears throat> I tried a Jolly Ranchers cereal. Which, Wait, uh, what? What is Jolly Rancher cereal? Because like I, I can't like does it have hard pieces in it? No, no, it's just it's just the there's four different flavors um, that are modeled after Jolly Rancher flavors, and I anticipated it to be something kind of like 
tricks with maybe a little bit more of like a candy sweet taste. But the flavor overall is kind of bland. The um, It has grape, uh, cherry, green apple, and blue raspberry. And the only flavor you really get in any given spoonful is the, the sour green apple. And I even tried like the individual pieces to see if it changed if you just had them, you know, one single flavor. And you just don't get it. Otherwise, it just tastes vaguely sweet, like, you know, a, a general, you know, hard candy and not anything that actually tastes like Jolly Ranchers. It was, it was pretty disappointing. Um, so, yeah, I, if you were thinking about trying those, I, I would say pass. Maybe just wait. I, I don't know how many listeners love this segment, but I just love that you actually seriously review the most ridiculous food items. <laughs> like, I'm always <laughs> curious about some of this stuff. <laughs> okay, go, uh, you tried Mountain Dew Zero? Yeah, Mountain Dew Zero Sugar. Uh, they finally came out with like um, a good version that is you know a diet uh, version of mountain dew that doesn't taste like trash uh, i've always hated diet mountain dew uh more than any other diet soda except for maybe diet coke i actually hate diet coke too but um i've just never liked it but this mountain dew zero sugar actually tastes pretty damn close to regular mountain dew and it's uh, it's so uh, to the point where like i could drink it instead of having like a regular can of mountain dew when it, and i don't like, drink soda super often it's usually just when i try new ones like for for this segment or whatever uh but every now and then you know i i crave like having a, a bottle or a can of mountain dew so as long as this stays permanent i'll reach for this instead of the regular mountain dew the only downside to it is it does have aspartame in it which is apparently the artificial sweetener that everyone is really down on um because it's maybe not as good for you as as people think it is uh, but the the taste, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty good. Definitely better than Diet Mountain Dew. So if you're looking for an alternative because you don't want to drink as much regular Mountain Dew, there you go. I'm interested to try that. I like all the zero sugar line. Uh, like I I love Coke Zero, um, but it's it's weird. I I think like they haven't been successful with their zero sugar line. Like I like I look at like. Uh, I know Disney Parks is probably not the best example, but it is because it's a microcosm of tourists from around the world coming to a theme park. And they used to sell Coke Zero everywhere in Disney Parks, and now they it's very hard to find Coke Zero there, which makes me think that less people were buying it because why else would they be like you know not not having that available at every stand? I'm not necessarily sure that's indicative of it not being popular overall, but maybe when people are on vacation and tourists at a theme park, they're not looking to be as healthy. So maybe they just go with the regular soda options. Yeah, yeah, that's probably possible. So what else have you been eating? Uh, so there are two new Oreo flavors that just came out, uh, chocolate marshmallow and caramel coconut. Um, the chocolate marshmallow one is fine. It's not remarkably different from... Just a regular chocolate Oreo, except it has some bits of like marshmallow in the cream itself, uh, giving it a vague uh, marshmallow flavor along with the chocolate cream, but not remarkably different enough to really be anything to write home about. Uh, the caramel coconut ones are really good, though. Uh, I like the flavor of the caramel cream, and the coconut adds a, a nice extra touch to it, uh, and it goes really well with the, ch- the chocolate cookie. And, uh, so that's that's one of the better recent ones I think I've seen. You tried these too, didn't you, Peter? Yeah, no, I did try these. Um, I, I like them. Uh, like you know, they're not as good as like some of the stuff. Like I love the like pe- peppermint bark Oreos that came out during the holidays, but these are very good. It has a, a good coconut taste to them. I would say that the caramel taste like tastes kind of like that, like a weird fake candy caramel taste to it. Like it doesn't That's taste like, like real caramel, but it, it's not like it bothers me anything. Yeah. So yeah, uh, so I'd recommend these. You can get these everywhere, right? Like Target and Walmart. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. yeah, they're all over now. 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, ben, what have you been playing this week? Uh, well, one thing that I've been playing is a podcast that I wanted to give a shout out to. I talked about this, I think, a couple years ago. Um, it's called The Secret History of Hollywood, and it is one of the best podcasts that I've ever listened to. They just wrapped up, uh, or it's really only like one guy. I think his name is Adam Roche, who is like the host, and he um, basically dives into uh, all sorts of um, stories about – he focuses on one person from like the golden age of Hollywood and tells their – essentially their life story. So um, this most recent season was about Val Luton, who was a, a producer who made movies like Cat People and, and sort of revolutionized the way that people saw horror movies back in the day. Um, and uh, this series started in 2017 and just came to an end uh, in October. And I finally got around to finishing the last episode. And um, I, the reason it took so long to do that was because several of the episodes are very, very long. I remember talking on the previous uh, time that I mentioned this, where he was doing a, um, a series about uh, James Cagney, where one of the podcast episodes was like nine hours long. Uh, this was not the case in uh, in the Val Luton series, but um, one of them was like just over six hours. So uh, most of them are. Why, you know, why somewhere... not split that up? I don't understand. <laughs> well, I th I really think that like you know it, it just works on a thematic level with what he's talking about. It it, it really it, it seems ridiculous, but I think once you're listening to it, it, it makes a lot more sense why these uh, stories are, are broken out and segmented the way that they are. Um, he sort of eases you into it. So the first few episodes in the uh, 11 episode season, if you will, are only like an hour and a half or two hours or something. And then they sort of uh, slowly get a little bit more and more um, lengthy. And I think it's because he just has a lot more uh, research and, and a lot more story to get through during these sort of peak periods in these people's lives. But I cannot recommend this podcast high, highly enough. Um, from what I understand, the Val Luton episodes are still available on iTunes right now. So if you search The Secret History of Hollywood on your on your podcast app, you can find those. I would recommend downloading all of the Val Luton ones right now. Those are the only ones that are available on uh, the app. But then, And I think that they're going to disappear because the Jimmy Cagney ones are no longer available. As far as I can tell, maybe you can like buy them on Audible or something like that. But um, I would definitely re recommend just downloading all of them if you have room on your phone for <laughs> several really long podcast apps. And then uh, he's got a new series coming out soon, a new um, season about Cary Grant. So I'm very excited to listen to that. But I just wanted to give another shout out to this podcast because it's a storytelling podcast and it is like the most immersive um well-researched, uh, just like super high production values. It's like the, it, it's like the, an old school radio drama with like sound effects and yeah, the, stuff, the voice right? work is like out of this world. It's so, so good. It's like one of my favorite podcasts of all time. And I think it's it's flying under the radar for a lot of people. And I just want uh, everybody to at least know about this. And and yes, the, the long podcast episodes are probably going to put some people off. But I, I really think if you give the show a listen and get sucked in, uh, which happens instantly, um, then you'll be willing to uh, to go along for the ride. So it's called The Secret History of Hollywood. Well, very cool. That concludes this water cooler episode you can find more of all of our work at slashfilm.com you can find this podcast slash film daily published every weekday on itunes google overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps please feel free to send your feedback questions comments concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com and please rate and review this podcast on itunes tell your friends spread the word and we'll see you tomorrow wait where, where's jacob we forgot
We forgot to tell Jacob that we were recording this podcast. Oh no! Oh no! What no do we book do? today. Oh, I, 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 I guess we won, right? <laughs> I mean, did we though? 